Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go and check out all that the Dice Tower has to offer at Dicetower.com. Whether it's the latest news or reviews, whether it's a huge archive of videos, uh, playthroughs, and commentary by Tom, Sam, Z, Eric, and the rest of the gang, it's all there. As well as a huge selection of sister podcasts on the Dice Tower Network, including such greats as Ludology and Board Game Insider. So go check out everything that the Dice Tower has to offer. The Long View is generously sponsored by GameSurplus.com. Go and check out everything that Game Surplus has at this great holiday time of year. There's a ton of new titles that have just arrived at Game Surplus, including hard-to-find titles like Free Kingdoms Redux and uh, Noya Heimat and uh, just wonderful import selection, as well as all the latest, greatest uh, released and uh, printed and uh, published and distributed here in the United States. So whether you're looking for a hard-to-find import or whether you're looking for uh, a great game, uh, you know, like uh, Castles of Mad King Ludwig Expansion or... Uh, Regardless of what it is, uh, they have it or they are getting it in stock. And if they don't have it, just shoot an email to Velma over at games at gamesurplus.com and she'll be sure to track a copy down for you lightning fast and get it shipped off to you equally quickly. So find out why gamesurplus.com is my first choice whenever I'm buying board games. That's gamesurplus.com. I also want to send a shout out to my local game store for those in the northeastern PA region. That's the Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Go and find out all that they have to offer. They have an enormous selection of board games and card games, CCGs, LCGs. They have Magic the Gathering, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh! Just so many different uh, uh, board games and card games there. They have a full range of comic books, video games, vintage video games, and a huge amount of table space, which is truly exceptional and difficult to find. So if you're in the northeastern PA region, stop off uh, right off of Interstate 80 in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania on Main Street. You will find the Gamer's Edge. So go check out and see what they have to offer. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View, and today I am very pleased to be joined by two special guests today over in the UK, all the way across the pond. That would be David Howell and Stephen Miller. Uh, These gentlemen were kind enough to reach out to me and ask if they could talk about one of their favorite games, Viticulture. And in particular, they wanted to talk about it as a two-player experience, which I found to be really an interesting idea because most of my plays of Viticulture had been at a higher player count. So uh, I was really intrigued by the offer and very grateful for it. And so, gentlemen, I want to say hello and thank you both very much for agreeing to be on the show. Thank you, I'm David. Cheers. uh, I'm Stephen. Well, gentlemen, thanks for uh, uh, reaching out, and uh, we had a little bit of a scheduling snafu, so I appreciate your uh, uh, patience with that as we got that resolved as well. And uh, so what I want to kind of uh, talk a little bit about first is uh, viticulture in general. Now, uh, for people who aren't familiar with the game, this is a worker placement, I guess you would say, style game. Uh, The theme is about uh, making wine, Um, different types of wine, white wines and red wines and champagnes and blushes, etc., etc. And so During the course of the game, you are trying to run your vineyard uh, better than everybody else runs their vineyard. Uh, You are trying to grow grapes and then harvest the grapes and then mash the grapes and then 
barrel them up and age the grapes and then produce your wine from there by mixing different types of, of grapes uh, that you have been fermenting uh, and then uh, hopefully having a cellar and being able to age your wine to perfection to sell to discriminating customers who are going to give you lots and lots of money hopefully and drive you towards victory so uh, this is a game that is highly thematic in my opinion and it was uh, what kind of attracted me to it initially was that theme and the thematic elements um, the only other kind of wine game that I had played previous to this was by uh, the great uh, Vital Lacerda um, and the, the name of the game has just fled my mind um, Vinos there we go and that was a, a wonderful game but it was a little bit more abstracted and this kind of I felt like I was a little more immersed in the sort of day-to-day -day operation of running a vineyard and so this was a game that I was really interested in when I first heard about it um, so how did you gentlemen become aware of the game and kind of what's your backstory about it? Well, I initially became aware of the game after backing Euphoria on Kickstarter. Okay. Uh, so I've kind of come to the Stonemaier games backwards, essentially. Euphoria was a game that really impressed, impressed me when I uh, played it a few times. Uh, then I looked at the other things that the company and Jamie Stegmaier had done and found Viticulture, which was a... It looked interesting, and the reviews that were available at the time were looking good as well. So it was uh, sort of knowing the designer and knowing that Euphoria was a another thematic Euro, which is a style of games that I do tend to uh, enjoy. Well, thanks for sharing that background. And and how about uh, uh, you? That that was Stephen, yes, if I'm getting my names right. And yeah. so, David, how about you? How did you become aware of the game? Through Stephen, basically, Stephen, my, my fiancé, we're getting married in July. Oh, congratulations. That's wonderful news. Thank you. Yeah, he is very much who has... Uh, sent me into this uh, game loop for the most part I didn't really have uh, any of these games for the most part I have a completely random copy of title bout through a, a, <laughs> a family member from some time ago and I used to occasionally solo it but it's Stephen who when we met up in game show fandom uh, and then as he moved in he introduced me to his board game collection and things have started from there and it's uh so basically 99% of my game discoveries I owe to him it's one of the best things about our relationship well wonderful okay so you're kind of approaching this more as a person who was getting into the hobby um you know almost uh, from a new perspective uh whereas Stephen you've been kind of uh, active with board gaming for a while yes yes uh probably about seven or eight years now probably Okay, all right. Well, um, it's interesting, you know, you mentioned the designer, uh, Jamie Stegmeier, um, and Alan Stone is also listed as a designer. Uh, this game came out in 2013 and is for two to six players. Just wanted to throw that out there as well. And, uh, yeah, Jamie is somebody that I had been uh, kind of aware of um, in much the same process that you were, uh, you know, through Euphoria and then Viticulture. Uh, and now, of course, you know, we've got Scythe coming out, which is uh, looking rather amazing and has shattered all kinds of records for kick 
Kickstarter, um, which was kind of an amazing thing to to watch and see that as it transpired as well. So I think we definitely have a, a designer here, and in this case, a design team that really did a, a wonderful job of kind of creating this sort of thematic kind of game experience. Because uh, you identified Euphoria, uh, Euphoria rather as a thematic experience, Stephen. Yes. Um, I think Viticulture, it's pretty obvious how it's thematic. Um, and so uh, for Euphoria, how did you feel that theme? I know that's not the subject here, but I just want to make sure that uh, you know everybody out there listening kind of understands what you would classify as a thematic game. So how would you classify uh, Euphoria as thematic? How does that feel thematic to you? Uh, the cycle of manipulating your workers' knowledge in Euphoria, Euphoria has... Uh, thematic elements to it but what really captures the theme for euphoria is not exactly mechanically capturing the theme but psychologically with the sense of oppression when someone else gets a market built that you don't have access to which means that you've suddenly got a penalty instead of a bonus whereas most of the games would have anyone who completed a market gets a special ability rather than in this one you can someone else completes the market now you've got a penalty to deal with very interesting so it's that sort of uh dystopian you really felt that dystopian theme coming through and i don't know that i would uh, disagree with you in that and uh like you, I was fascinated by the whole nature of the smarter people get, uh, the, the greater the chance that they're going to flee. Uh, you don't want to have too many people around with too many ideas uh, or things could get bad for the establishment. Um, I, I agree. I mean, I think that some of the names of the buildings, while both um, funny, um, were also very thematic. Um, I, you know, the, the sort of tortured um, verbiage in the names of the, the markets and the buildings and whatnot were always amusing. Um, Friendly game bonfire <laughs> <laughs> yes yes so you know I, I, that is an interesting uh, kind of depiction of the theme it kind of felt very kind of like Kurt Vonnegut ish or Philip K. Dick kind of uh, uh, roots for me um, you know in, in the way that it kind of looked at that so okay so theme uh, you know you're drawn to theme either uh, at, at a sort of um, uh, obvious level uh, as in uh, I think it's much more obvious in viticulture or you're kind of drawn to the theme and sort of the feel of the game so okay well thank you for uh, kind of giving us that background so we can understand you better as a player um, now viticulture uh, for me uh, one of the reasons I was really curious to talk to you guys is that every time I played viticulture like many worker kind of placement games I've always felt that a large portion of the tension in these games can come from the competition for different kinds of action selection spaces and uh, you know there's there's also competition for bonuses in viticulture you know if you are the first to go to one of the locations for those who haven't played uh, the the main board is kind of set up in this lovely sort of uh, seasonal kind of uh, um, kind of seasonal pattern and uh, you're going to be placing workers on one side of the board and you're going to be placing workers on the other side of the board representing sort of the change in in the 
seasons. And there's going to be different opportunities that are available to you. And uh, also there's going to be some bonuses that are available to you if you're the first person to kind of send a worker to a particular location. And so to me, a lot of the competition was in that kind of part of the game. And I always felt it was much wider open and I felt less of that tension in a two-player game. So, you know, to kind of start framing uh, this kind of discussion of viticulture, both as a game overall and as in a two-player experience, can you uh, maybe talk, can you guys talk a little bit about whether or not you feel that tension is lacking in the two-player experience, whether it's not, and I'm just looking at it the wrong way. What would you say? The bonus action spaces are much less of a feature in a two-player game than any other player count. Uh, This is especially true in the uh, original board where all of the bonus spaces were on the middle action space. But instead of that, you can get shut out entirely from the thing that you uh, wanted to actually needed to do in many cases much easier in a two-player game than at any other player camp in viticulture. Yeah, it's a much more traditional worker placement blocking kind of feel to it than in than I think it is a higher player count simply because of the number of spaces for each option varying by player count in five to six player there's three so you could have if uh, very easily you can sit on one decision at higher player counts, I think, waiting for uh, someone else to make things so that you can lock in something else. But in two-player, if you, it becomes all the more important to be first player, particularly towards the end. The number of games we've had where it has come down to essentially being first player in what you think is going to be the final round, that is uh, huge because then that way... You can engineer a move to your final. You know you've got the cards to engineer getting to the end game condition of reaching a certain number of points, and then the bonuses in the end of the game are added after that. In the case of uh, the expanded board, but uh, you get uh, a situation where you know you're able to finish the game at this point, but the only way you can do that is if you're first player. And so there's, I think the tension is, so So I think the tension is actually shifted more towards the, uh, the a more traditional worker placement sort of tension than I suspect it is a higher player count, a different kind of intrigue. Well, that's interesting because, uh, you know, when you put it that way, yeah, I, I can see that because the designer clearly tried to keep that level of tension the same by restricting the spaces based upon the number of players. Um, and you're right. I, I think uh, in some ways at a larger player count, you do have that ability, as you said, to sit on a decision. You know, you, it's not always a question of I must do this first. You actually have a little bit of choice and some options because you might not get locked out of a location that you particularly want. Um now, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, I find interesting is this sort of uh, crucial nature of the timing of 
the actions and the things that you're trying to do to accomplish your goals in the game. Uh, this is a game that takes quite a while, uh, in my experience, to ramp up. You know, it seems like it takes forever to start sort of uh, gaining that momentum, but once things get moving, things move very quickly. Um, would you say that this is a game that ratchets up intention as, as you go at the two-player count as well as the higher-player counts, or is it different? I would say it definitely ratchets up intention, and there is a very... Uh, the curve of the pacing of the game ratchets it up. Ratchets up, yeah. It really does, because you you spend the first third or so of the game, for the most part, uh, building the engine to score points in the later part of the game, creating, obviously, planting you, uh, your vines, uh, getting grapes from them, then starting to create wine later and then getting the buildings that you need to get uh, higher value uh, wines, with, uh, which is important for most of the uh, wine orders that you're going to be fulfilling later in the game. Yeah, because early on in the game especially, you almost don't care how many points you're getting from fulfilling a wine order. It's that, re- it's that uh, ongoing revenue that you care about because you still haven't built your cellar fully up yet whereas in the towards the end of the game it's uh, not unheard of for uh, one or the other of us to be scoring 10 or 12 points in a single turn which considering the game is up to 20 in the base and 25 in the expansion uh, that is very easily half of your score in one turn Yes, yes, indeed. But it takes quite a lot of effort in order to have that sort of super scoring turn, which I, I hear you talking about as well. Um, one of the things that I just want to kind of clarify really quickly, though, before we move on, I, I should have done this to begin with, is what is your gentleman's experience with the game? In other words, did you start with the first edition or did you start with the second edition? Because there were definitely some changes um, you know, with the the newer edition, I believe the newer edition uh, it included the grande kind of meeple, the large meeple, whereas the original edition did not have that. It was much more kind of cutthroat, uh, in my opinion. Uh, you know, I think the grande meeple softened things a little bit. Um, so, what what is your what is your guys' history with it? Did you start with that first edition or second edition with the, with Tuscany when they kind of released Tuscany? You had that updated sort of rule set and things of that nature. We came in with the second edition. Ah, okay. All right. Uh, So I I think that's going to help some listeners out there who are familiar with the first edition because it was definitely a different feel uh, in many ways um, because of the worker placement sort of aspect, I think was even more restrictive in the first edition than what you guys are talking about. Um, So... If, if my memory serves, I, I've been playing a lot with, uh, you know, everything, the updated board and components and whatnot from Tuscany, uh, which I think we're going to touch base with uh, and, and talk a little bit about later as well. But, uh, yeah, that first edition was was a little bit different. Um, 
one of the things that I wanted to ask you guys about now that we've kind of talked about the arc of the game, you know, it's a slow build and then this kind of big splash towards the end. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, there are many times when uh, there are opportunities for you to lose kind of victory points uh, in order to gain some crucial benefits. And then you try to kind of make that up in these big leapfrog moves later. Um, so there's definitely that that slow boil. But then once things get going, they really get going. Uh, one of the criticisms that's been leveled at the game that I'm curious what you guys would think about is the customer cards, you know, the sort of the wine order cards. Um, you know, now I've heard people kind of complain about the sort of randomness of the card draw and that you can sometimes just not really have the luck, you know, in the early game you're pulling champagne cards, you know, Um or, you know, in the late game where you need to make a lot of points, you're looking for that big six-point card, um, you know, you're, you're pulling, uh, you know, a, a, a card that is only going to get you a few points. Uh, what do you guys feel about the, the mechanism in the game of the card draw for customers, uh, for orders, and all that kind of, the wine connoisseur cards, I think they call them, and then, and then the order cards? What do you guys uh, feel about that? I think it can be, as you say, a little bit frustrating if you get things you want in the early game late and things you want in the late game early. And to an extent, that was actually addressed uh, with the the way the visitors changed in Tuscany. That was most of the time where I was being thwarted in my early playings of the game uh, before we got Tuscany were actually with uh, horrible visitor luck of getting things that built your engine late and things that you could use late early and most of the visitor cards then got replaced with one of the expansion modules in Tuscany to create a lot more overall decisions, One usually one that helped you build an engine early and one that, that helped you uh, get points late. Whereas with the wine orders, you can usually get use out of getting ones that you'd prefer to have later on in the game early and vice versa. The actual problem I find with that, the way that works, is when all you can pull is red grapes and all you can pull are white wine orders. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's another excellent point as well, and that's something that I, I definitely agree can be a little frustrating because it's almost like a chicken and an egg kind of a, a you know conversation because there are many times where I've said, okay, I'm going to beat this uh, problem that I have of, of not having the right order cards. I'm going to take order cards early in the game and then start planting vines aggressively and making sure that what I'm growing is actually going to help me uh, produce wines that I know I have orders for. Um, and then, like you said, that all sounds like a nice, solid, strategic idea. But then if every time I'm pulling cards uh, you know, for vines, I'm pulling the wrong kind of grape, it really doesn't matter much because I'm still going to be sort of thwarted in that way. Um, you know, have you guys found any sort of um, preferred sort of a strategy or would you have any uh, advice for people approaching this game for the first time in order to avoid some of the problems that we've been talking about? Um, now, you know, as you said, uh, David, some of that stuff has been handled by the Tuscany expansion. But if you're just kind of playing Viticulture, you know, itself for the first time, what would be your advice to not have that kind of frustrating experience? Because I have seen that and I have seen it turn a few players off. I think it's valuable to aggressively draw vine cards to make sure you've got 
both colours. This is actually a lot easier in the base game than in Tuscany because you are spotted a Pino, which gives you a white and a red right off the bat. In Tuscany, it becomes more difficult to do that, but there's also more ways around it because uh, there's the bonus uh, vine draw on the expanded boards you can pick up too, and there's the trade one for one, which lets you at a cost, perhaps a point, uh, spot yourself an extra grape of one colour, which can be useful in a pinch while you're waiting for the right vines to come. Yeah, also, um, if you just wait a couple of months, you'll be able to pick up the Essential Edition, which is bringing a few of the uh, Tuscany modules into the base game. Yeah, that's something that uh, I've been curious about as well, is is kind of what they're going to do kind of packaging-wise as far as that goes. Because, you know, the Tuscany uh, expansion, I mean, we might as well kind of touch base about that because I know you guys have played a lot with that as well and wanted to talk about it. So for people who aren't familiar, uh, Tuscany is sort of this interesting modular expansion box. It's this enormous box of... Uh, different possibilities and uh, there's a suggestion that you kind of play it almost legacy style where it's like add this in and then uh, add this in and then add this next one in and these you know particular orders and whatnot Uh, I kind of completely disregarded that I don't know about you guys Um, and just kind of like read through them and like ooh, I want to try this or ooh, I want to try that Um, and so you know there's some that I think are kind of essential like the mamas and the papas is a little expansion that basically just differentiates the starting position and resources of the players playing the game with just a simple little card draw in the beginning. Um, you know, that that I find to be really interesting and valuable. Then there's a replacement cards, uh, Stephen, I believe, that you were uh, referring to, um, talking about, you know, trying to fix some of the issues with the order cards and the customers and, and whatnot. So, uh, you know, that's something that's important. And then, of course, you have the expanded board, uh, which I don't play without anymore. I mean, I I really enjoy that that kind of uh, the, the options that are presented with that. And then in addition to that, geez, I mean, there's like a mafia expansion, which is kind of goofy. I, I don't particularly care for that one. Uh, it does not work with two players. No, I'll bet it doesn't. Uh, and then you know, there's like a whole you can get into making cheese, and you can get into orchards, and you know, uh, all of these different kinds of modules that you can kind of plug in. Yeah, that's. Yeah, and it makes it very customizable. Um, is there anything that you gentlemen uh, have found in that ridiculously huge box of expansions that you kind of have latched onto or feel really adds to the experience? The expanded board, which you mentioned, uh, really enhances one of the interesting, unique things about uh, viticulture. Uh, mechanisms uh, with the season the way the seasons work because normally with a work placement game you can just go okay this is my plan b if i can't get what my what i want to do with viticulture your plan b might have required you to do something different in a previous season which means that you have to either go right. okay I can do this in the season and not have time to do everything I want to do. Or I can risk being blocked out of what I want to do. And But if I can get it done, then I'm going to be able to do everything I want to do. Which adds to the uh, tension 
that you mentioned earlier about of work placement games yes indeed uh would you find uh, that to be true as well david and is there anything else that you kind of feel is sort of a must add from the tuscany expansion definitely the mamas and papas as you said and i think the new visitors are absolutely essential certainly the 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 special bits the different visitors that you get in there's two different modules of them actually one that just adds more and some that replaces the existing ones the uh, the ones that replace the existing ones are absolutely essential for me simply because they remove one aspect of that chance that can be frustrating by allowing you to get uh, things that work either early or late um and that, but I think most of the expansions, at the very least, add something. And we did play it legacy style, and I particularly appreciated the way it introduced new things one at a time. Because uh, I tend to struggle a bit with uh, not so much uh, learning new games because I tend to pick them up fairly well once I do. It's just that being autistic and having sort of some issues with uh, audio processing uh, sometimes. Because usually Stephen teaches me uh, games or rules by explaining to them and sometimes it feels like it, I can't take them all in and that can be frustrating. But it's a lot easier to learn it one little bit at a time and say, oh, there's a 10-minute uh, explanation of this and then there's another of that. And that works really well for me. Well, excellent. Yeah, I, I think that there's definitely some value to doing it, uh, as you described in that legacy style, to kind of make the, the expansions come in in digestible chunks. I think that would be true for anybody. Um, you know, me, I just kind of like went through and, and picked and choose what kind of struck my fancy at the time. And uh, I don't know if that's the right way or the wrong way. I, I, I don't think there is a right way or wrong way. But, um, you know, for me, the, there, there were some that I found really interesting and others that I kind of was left uh, scratching my head a little bit. Um, have you guys tried the uh, cheese kind of making expansion, for example, uh, or the sort of uh, orchard expansion? Uh, what do you think about adding those different elements to the game? Does it add to the thematic experience or does it kind of detract or dilute from the sort of purity of the conceptual framework of the game boy that's a weird <laughs> sentence but you know i'm talking about like you know everything in viticulture makes sense to me it's all about wine a winery i'm giving tours i'm setting up my little tent for people to come and taste stuff i'm uh building a bigger cellar and then all of a sudden it's like well now i got cheese i'm like wait a minute where's where's the cheese coming from why are there cows i don't understand this um i liked the sort of challenge of it but i found it a bit odd thematically what what do you guys have to say about that have you tried those uh, yes i definitely agree with uh where you're coming from in general but with culture one especially uh, the Fromagio one, the cheese one, I didn't quite find that as much to be a dilution of the core thing because having some cheese with your wine makes a certain amount of sense. <laughs> so it wasn't yes, it as much right. of a stretch for me. Um, I definitely wouldn't want to play with either of those all of the time. But as you say, they do add an interesting... Uh, new dimension to explore on occasion yeah and I, I tend to think that the the morale track um adds a particularly interesting strategy especially because 
you basically have to decide on the first turn, are you going to commit to it and churn up that uh, point flow uh, at the expense of having to spend a little bit of time creating the engine for it? Or are you literally going to disregard it, take the one point penalty and churn through your strategy uh, uninterrupted and act as if it never happened? And that is a particularly interesting early game decision to make, which uh, I quite appreciate. And we've had both strategies work. Also, the third strategy of uh, actually shipping uh, olive oil or... Uh, tomato sauce with wine has worked in the past uh, it's all three of the approaches that that allows you to take seem to work uh, usually for him rather than me <laughs> yeah it's, it's funny because I actually seem to be much better as the game grows in complexity I'm total we've played 35 two-player games of this and in the whole series i have the edge 20 and 15 but Stephen was seven and one in the first eight i gotcha all right so you caught up quickly is what this boils down to yeah and 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 he knows those numbers Stephen. he knows them he was able to rattle those off did you catch that (laughs) there was like no hesitation there (laughs) he's got the win loss Uh, record Well, I've been I've been uh, keeping track of the numbers as part of the uh, ten by ten challenge. Oh yes, yes, yes. And and have you guys done any other games with the ten by ten challenge? Because that's a that's a wonderful idea uh, that's been around I think for a couple of years. Have you guys uh, been really exploring that? Yeah, we've uh, we finished the our ten by t- well, I finished. I've been doing the ten by t- ten challenge. A lot of them are two player, but a couple of solo games snuck in there as well uh i've finished the challenge for the year and i'm starting to think about next year's as now uh, wonderful wonderful well that'll give you plenty of opportunities to check in again and maybe uh, talk about a different game so uh mm-hmm. that sounds fantastic because that's just more programming for me so <laughs> <laughs> love it <laughs> anyway so, all right, well, uh, you know, thanks for offering up those uh, sort of strategic options and paths that you see uh, when you add in those expansions. Um, that is one of the things that, that, interestingly enough for me, was a little bit of a concern in that, once again, you know, I, I think about the kind of cutthroat nature of the game at times. Um, you know, it is rather aggressive for a, a just a, you know, a standard kind of worker placement game because, as you said, so many of your actions uh, carry over across seasons as far as your plans go that you can really be set back um, by being denied. Whereas when you add in these expansions, whether it's, you know, the sauce, the olive oil, the cheese, whatever it might happen to be, it, it does open up different avenues uh, for you to kind of use to score, which uh, in some ways, could you say, dilutes some of that tension? It can do, but sometimes it adds a completely different tension of its own because you you might have a plan B and a plan C that makes it a bit less scary, but at the same time, that just replaces it with some agony of deciding between these plans. So <laughs> it's uh, it adds uh, it adds at least as much as it takes away. I think. Mm. Uh, also, when uh, you've added the expanded board. You go from two seasons with six actions available in each season to four seasons with four actions available in each season, which means that the uh, decision point and 
almost a push your luck kind of uh, thing of do I risk uh, going all in on one strategy or do I spread myself thin and can't play it as optimally but I know I'm going to be able to do something later on. Uh, that becomes even more of a factor because you've now got four seasons to worry about rather than just the two, uh, which adds to the tension of uh, the game when you add in the expanded board. And that also adds uh, some tension to the where to choose your wake-up position. So it shifts a lot of the tensions there because you've got to think, do I want to prioritise not getting blocked or do I want to prioritise getting these bonuses and hoping that I can work around any blocking that does happen? And that's in addition to the planning about when you want to be blocked or when you're most worried about blocking, which is uh, it's quite often I have won a few games by anticipating when I think I'm two years away from winning right, right. and taking up uh, wake-up position seven and getting the extra worker um, and then getting first player in the next year which I anticipate to be my final year sometimes I've won that way when I've pulled that off yeah absolutely and that wake up uh, position is a really fascinating kind of addition to the game that I really appreciated for exactly the same reasons that you guys are discussing. You can either kind of get the option to go first or you can get benefits. Um, the later you go, you know, the, the better the benefit is going to be. And there's also that little bit of aspect of chicken, you know, like as I can place in the second or third position and think, well, you know, I don't know. I, you know, judging from my opponent, I think they're actually going to want to go lower than me. I think the, you know, I think I'm safe here. So I'm going to kind of like be a little, I'm going to try to cheat a little bit by selecting a, a, a spot where I'm still going to get a bonus uh, because I'm pretty sure that they don't want to take no bonus. I think they really want that extra worker based on what I see they're doing. So I don't have to worry. I can actually select this position and, and get this cool bonus. And so that's another really interesting decision point in the game. Uh, and it reminds me a, a little bit. I mean, it, it's very different, but it does remind me a little bit of uh, the, the system in Fresco, you know, where uh, when you wake up determines some of the benefits or, or the drawbacks uh, that you might have. You know, waking up early, your morale is terrible, uh, but you get first dibs at the paint, whereas waking up late, you're happy, but you're going to be left with whatever is left. And, and I kind of get a little bit of that same feeling um, in this kind of turn order mechanism. So, uh, is there anything else that you guys uh, would have to say about that? Because to me, sometimes when I played, especially with a large group of people, there was a lot of kind of staring at that board as people are trying to puzzle out where do I want to go basically to, to you know set myself up for the next turn. And that's a meaty kind of a crunchy decision, yes? Yeah, I think in two-player, there's less of that kind of agony in terms of because it's... Uh, because there's only you go first or you don't. But on the other hand, right. it cranks up the chicken element. You can, you could look at say, oh, I particularly want, maybe I particularly want uh, optional number four or number five, and then think, uh, is my opponent going to want that? And then, it, if you're happen to be uh, to be pulling your guys off first, then that is a really big decision. And then when the second player comes in, then it's a, a difference because obviously. It's framed for you by knowing where your opponent's gone, and then you've got 
a properly interesting decision in another way. But I think particularly if you're the first to pull off, it's still a pretty agonising decision of where to go. Just more emphasis on that chicken element. Yeah, uh, you mentioned it uh, reminding you a little of Fresco. I believe Jamie's uh, said in uh, blogs, etc., that he was inspired by the Fresco mechanic for it. Oh wow! Okay, well that that would uh, be a direct uh, kind of a line. Then so now I understand why I have that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, uh, while we're talking about it, I mean Jamie's blog is is just fantastic, um, both in his game design and his Kickstarter blog, and uh, just the the amount of uh, information that he shares in general about design and publishing, I think, is really admirable and something that I think adds a lot of value to the community. So kudos to him for that. Um, Gentlemen, I want to ask you about uh, another interesting little kind of addition with the, uh, uh, the the new board with Tuscany, which is the little sort of map region uh, on the board where players are kind of uh, positioning themselves on an actual like little physical map that has been added to the game now. What is your opinion of that? Because I've heard a lot of mixed reviews about that. It's not a big enough deal for me to be properly put off by it but it is probably my least favorite part of the expanded board as a whole but that i'm not entirely convinced that that sort of very majority sort of mechanism really shines that too unless the game has been designed around it like with twilight struggle i think also it was partly because uh i uh ended up uh, pushing it more aggressively in the first few times he used it and I started winning that way which probably didn't help him <laughs> but uh, also I know that Stephen said in his 10x10 reviews that he started appreciating that a bit more once the structures it, uh, module was added because that was the uh, by far the easiest way to add, uh, add structures besides one option on the wake up position and sometimes, particularly in the early game, that can be, if you get the right expansion, that can be pretty, uh, the right structure, that can be pretty devastating. Yes, especially if you can uh, get into a uh, rhythm with a combination of one of your structures. Because there's a structure that gives you a point whenever you build a seven or more value wine. Right. And then... You can sell that wine for points without having to go through the usual wine order business, which can prove a particularly useful combo. And I had one game where I won something like uh, 30 to 9, where I got a ridiculous combination (laughs) through... I got the distiller, which allowed me to age my grapes, and I had a pino, which gave me grapes of both colours, and I was basically able to... Uh, churn they turn that with a bunch of low value wine orders and create an engine that fired up ridiculously quickly and by the time Stevens was actually getting somewhere the game was already over and I do think that you can overcome whatever combination your the other player is going for with that uh, because even when I get a ridiculous combination David still usually wins <laughs> <laughs> alright so uh, you, you're you're not 
saying then that you think that there are combinations in the game that break the game. You're no. saying you believe clever play will win out uh, most times, uh, you know, versus a, a killer combination. Um, what do you guys think about uh, one of the other things that was added? Uh, you know, I, I know uh, that I found it very intriguing, the idea of selling your property um, to get a, a influx of cash, which you can then use, um, especially early in the game when you really don't need a ton of fields. You don't need as much field space uh, in the beginning, I think, as you do later in the game once you really have identified the sort of types of wines that you need to be churning out and what your engine is going to look like. Uh, what do you guys think about that option of, of the selling of your land and then the buying of it back? I think that that accelerates the uh, game, uh, particularly in the early game. It smooths the uh, curve of the pacing a little bit because a lot of the early game in the base set is trying to get enough cash to do anything with. I find the most difficult thing about that is deciding which field to sell early and the times where I say I sell the six wine, uh, six field, uh, or the biggest field for six coins, and then find, oh, if I'd uh, sold the other one, I wouldn't have needed that coin, but I would have been able to plant that vine. That can be frustrating. Or, for that matter, if I... Sorry, then the next game I might sell my the middle one and get five, and then find I'm one coin short or something. That's right, a bit right. easier to deal with, but it's still frustrating. For that reason, I like to gather a fair amount of uh, grapes before making that decision, but that obviously means that I'm not getting quite as much of a pace advantage from uh, selling a field. I don't think I I don't think I always wind up selling a field. Sometimes what I'm doing in the game means that I don't need that uh, quick influx of cash earlier on. It depending on often depends on what Mama and Papa I uh, drew that time round. That's true as well. Yeah, definitely. And I really appreciate how you framed that uh, answer because I've been it's been gnawing at me for a while, like why I like it so much. And I think you you know you really identified it, which is it does it kind of smooths out that slow kind of build up and gives you a little bit of a nudge. It kind of gets things rolling a little bit. And that pace advantage is is an idea uh, that you that you talked about. I think that's a really interesting thought because so much of the game is rhythm and pace that when you have that uh, opportunity to kind of jump ahead a little bit uh, through a, a fast influx of cash that really can change the pace of your game and puts a lot of pressure on the other players so uh, I definitely appreciate uh, you sharing that because it's something that I, I couldn't quite figure out how to say it or it, it wasn't quite clear in my mind I knew it it definitely was something that I liked and it was something that made the game feel a little looser to me in the beginning but I think you're right it's all about the pacing so so uh, that's definitely one that, that I have enjoyed uh, quite a bit. Um, so, you know, we've got this kind of really interesting, very thematic game, uh, a lot of sort of uh, decisions to be made, long-term yes. planning galore in this game, yes? Um, what would you say is the, where would you place the levels, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the most and 1 being the least, for strategy and tactics in this game? In other words, uh, wh what would you rate it as, uh, as far as tactical decisions go, and what would you rate it as far as strategic decisions go? 
Good question. I think that uh, in many ways, it. I think the biggest decisions are often sort of almost in between the things that sort of planning out over the course of, say, two turns, not necessarily thinking about how you're going to end the game from the start of it in the way that uh, you might do in... So again, like I think Twilight Struggles is a game where I think you kind of have to think about from fairly early on how you're going to win outright. Like, are you going to win it through Europe or are you going to win through expanding the map into uh, large parts of the world in different regions? I think with uh, Viticulture, the biggest decisions are going to be what do I do this year versus what do I do next year? Sort of uh, of tactical on a sort of macro tactical level. It's not really micro tactical, but not really strategic either. I think that's. On the other hand, uh, you do have a fair bit of um, long term planning of what order you're going to uh, approach building up your uh, vineyard. Uh, Do you want to uh, get a solid uh, amount of vines for harvesting? Are you going to try and do some early wine orders? That sort of thing, in which case you'll probably want a cellar before one or the other of uh, your... the. trellis and irrigation um i think a lot there is a lot of long-term planning as uh jeff said uh with some there is but at the same time there is a lot of tactical pl- short-term tactical play as i was uh saying earlier about deciding how much of your workers to use in a particular season and how many you'll need you'll want to keep back for future knowing that if you keep some back then they might get blocked and you won't be able to do the thing that you were thinking about doing earlier on uh, that i think right. there's a lot of both uh, tactics tactical play and strategic play in the game and normally games do have a trade-off or either more tactical or more strategic but with viticulture i'm you do have to make a lot of decisions that are both tactical and strategic. It's it's in terms of you have to decide what kind of engine you want, and then you have to decide how you're going to build it in terms of the actions within that year. Yeah, I, I really, uh, I, I think I'm in agreement with you. I, I think we're we're definitely thinking along the same lines, which is. Uh, you know, there's definitely both, and uh, they seem to be very well balanced, I would say, uh, as you were talking about uh, definitely there, Stephen, this idea that, um, you know, so many of the, the tactical decisions are often, I find, in response to what other players have done. You know, uh, David, you've talked about plan A and plan B and, and uh, you know, having to respond to what other players are doing and what if you get kind of blocked or, you know, how are you going to react or respond to that to make something positive out of what would appear to be a setback. But then, you know, Stephen, I, I definitely agree with you that there's that sort of progression. A, a lot of times, one of the things that I do is I, I think about how do I I want to build my buildings this game you know because there's all the different structures and you know there there's many different ways that you can put those structures out um and and each of them gives you a very unique kind of a benefit 
And so often I find that one of the first things I'm considering when I kind of initially get going in that first year, uh, based on some of the cards that I've drawn, it's like then I start really thinking about, okay, what buildings do I need to build? Uh, how quickly do I need to get my cellar up and running? Am I looking at, you know, young wines? Am I looking at older wines? And those are kind of like those sort of long-term strategic kind of decisions that I really appreciate uh, in the game. And I would say that one of the things that I think makes this game so unique and one of the things that made it uh, such a, sh a strong game for me when I was talking about sort of this idea of it being a new classic was that I agree that I think it's relatively balanced. I mean, there, there's you're going to have to be able to do both of those things in order to be successful in this game. Would you agree? Yes, definitely. Yeah, and often you have to decide on how how much leeway you have to, to leave in terms of can how much tactical manoeuvre you want to leave um, or do you want to go all in on a particular strategy and leave yourself more vulnerable so there's risk management involved in that and a lot of the time it does vary depending on your mamas and papas as well if you get a, a combination where say you've got uh, a seller and then you've got some high value wine order or some high value wine orders and or grapes then you're going to want to focus on getting trellis and irrigation out early whereas if you've got yourself say a cottage and some low value wine orders and a pino uh, or some other low value grapes then you're going to want to uh, focus on getting those wine orders fed early. So in many ways, your strategic decisions are often dictated by that very first opening set of decisions with mamas and papas. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, and, and that's one of the things that I think makes the game feel very strategic because you kind of have to make those decisions early. How you end up accomplishing those things or whether you abandon them and switch to something else entirely is, of course, uh, the, the sort of tactical nature of the game. But right from the get-go, you are encouraged to kind of think very strategically and long-term. Um, and, and, you know, all of those other decisions are uh, factored in, but of equal weight. And that's what I kind of like about it. Those tactical decisions, you mentioned uh, another one um, that was uh, brilliant, that, that notion of how many workers do I hold back? Now, normally, that's, an, that's a, a fairly obvious decision because you're thinking, well, you know, if I hold back more workers for next season, I'm going to get to do more things. Duh. Well, no, not necessarily. As you said, you could end up not really being able to use them to their full extent or use them depending on what the other players do, how many they hold back, where they go, and how that impacts what your vision was of what you were trying to accomplish in that season. So, there's absolutely like no sort of automatic decisions in this game. And that's one of the things that I really appreciate about the design as well. Um, now, we've spent a lot of time, uh, gentlemen, so far talking about why we like this game. I think it's pretty clear to anybody listening that there's three fans of the game here. But I always try to, uh, you know present any kind of flip side I, you know I, I challenged a little bit on uh, the uh, customer cards and uh, the orders and, and whatnot um, you know talked a little bit about some of the randomness of the card draws and how that can be an effect um, for players is there anything about this game that actually rubs you guys the wrong way or that you wish had been done or handled differently I think that 
the, the randomness seems to be in a way that's frustrating in that it can sometimes leave you so I think I, I like randomness ch changing the variety of things but I think it's more frustrating when it can feel like your entire game is held hostage to a certain thing coming out whereas with say a completely different another two player game that we've played a fair bit Agricola or Creatures Big and Small the randomness comes in what's available uh, so every game is set up differently right. but aside from worker placement blocking you aren't held hostage to randomness within the game because everything that all the random elements are out there in the open before you even make a decision at the start of the game and so you can make your plans around what is still a slightly random setup uh, once the expansion is added the it isn't random before the expansion is added but the but you aren't held hostage to a card draw or a tile draw as uh, you are in this. Right. But, uh, so that's a slightly frustrating aspect. But then at the same time, what that does provide is the ability to uh, make, add those that push-your-luck element. How much of a hostage to fortune do I am I prepared to be is sometimes a decision you have to make in this game. Uh, for instance, you could go for a a cottage early and then it's like sooner or later I've got to get a visitor that I am going to make use of <laughs> that's that true, seems to be true. a strategy Stephen uses more than me I'm not mm. sure why uh, Mamas and Papas being where it is when it's introduced into Tuscany didn't have some elements that were added later in, in the structure of the thing for example the Mamas and for example, you can't get start with the structure cards in Mamas and, using Mamas and Papas. It would be nice if uh, there were some that fed into some of the other modules rather than just being the stuff that's available in the base game. Also, I am, as I said earlier, I'm not entirely keen on the way the uh, influence map works with two players. But that's been designed in a way that it is entirely plausible if you can even imagine another expansion, considering how big Tuscany is, uh, to make an expansion that makes that modular, to have different modules that do similar things, but in ways that work right, differently, right. which would add even more variety to the game, which there is so much variety in this game already. Once you get the Tuscan, add in the Tuscan expansion because that is a ridiculous expansion. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's a, and it's a it's a beautiful thing. I don't know if you guys went for the coins, but I got the coins as well, which are just crazy, um, crazy beautiful. These uh, metal coins. It's like wow, you know those things. Uh, they they weigh about five pounds. So uh, I don't know if you guys uh, decided to uh, splurge and get those as well, or whether the shipping costs would have made it uh, cost prohibitive for you. But the, everything about the expansion is kind of over the top. Um, I agree with you about the map. I, I definitely want to say that, Stephen, because I think when a two-player game, anytime you have an area majority thing, it almost ends up like a zero-sum kind of an affair, where 
you know, you place. And so therefore I kind of feel I place there to take that advantage, you know, as far as, you know, now nobody has majority here. Uh, and that's something that uh, if I'm remembering the structure of that is kind of how it works out with two players because you can kind of make it a zero-sum affair or one person kind of can run away uh, with it and gain a lot of advantages. So it's almost like you... For me, it almost became a bit of an annoyance because here I am trying to wrap my mind around how I'm going to accomplish all of these other things, very complex sort of timing issues between getting my grapes, crushing my grapes, uh, aging, uh, what am I going to sell, what am I going to put in the cellar, what am I going to, you know, what orders am I trying to fill, and it's like, oh man, he went to the map again, all right. What do I got to do about this? Okay, I can't just let one person sort of dominate that. Uh, now I got to get involved. And it almost kind of felt like a little bit of an annoyance to me, I, I guess would be what I would say is how I would characterize that. I just didn't feel that it added enough to the experience uh, in the way that a lot of the other modules did, um, you know, other than the Mafia one, which I didn't care for either, um, that, that it just... It, it didn't really appeal to me all that much. Um, would you kind of say that, you know, that, that that's a fair assessment or do you think I'm off base with that? I think it makes sense. I think what I would say is that the what that does create uh, in terms of going back to the blocking aspects you mentioned earlier, the fact that you can pick up something off the map that you might otherwise have feared you'd be blocked out of mm. or... Yeah then that that can be powerful or say or you didn't you're not sure if you're going to have time for it and so like say you've got first player and you want to make sure that you lock take advantage of that to uh, harvest your field and or filling your wine orders and it's like well am i going to have time to get any more uh, wine orders so i'm making wine tokens and harvesting fields am i going to be able to get the the wine orders that I need, I can get that with a star in the first and in the spring, and then hope that I can make something of that in the uh, in the winter after doing my things in the autumn. So, you it does add some tactical uh, elements there that feed into potential strategic decisions. It's uh, but it does sometimes, uh, and I can see exactly why you'd think it's frustrating. It almost feels like. It's powerful enough in terms of you get things and you get points from it. I think in two-player, that incentive to play in it is more significant because there's simply more points available for it than there would be in higher player counts in terms of the numbers that for each player that's distributed, given that the number of points overall is the same at any player count. So in that sense, it's a bit maybe overpowered as much as anything in two-player. Yeah, overpowered seems a good way of putting it because I can either get a vine card from the vine card spaces and depending on uh, the player count and if you go for the bonus action you can get two vine cards or I can get a vine card and either one or two points by placing a star here. Yeah, that definitely I think is is a, a better way to put it in that it's something in a two-player game I don't think you really can readily ignore, whereas, uh, you know, as you were talking about, David, you know, you might be able to kind of uh, divert most of your attention away from it at a higher player count. But, uh, yeah, it, 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 I'm not going to say it's the appendix of the game because, you know, that would imply that it's worthless. Um, 
I, I'm not that harsh about it, but it, it is something that kind of sticks out to me uh, as something that never really sat quite right. Um, so I appreciate you guys uh, sharing your thoughts about the things that, uh, you know, maybe are not uh, what you would have hoped for in this design. I want to circle back to something else that was said, too, that I found the parallel between this game and, say, uh, Agricola, All Creatures uh, uh, Big and Small, um, with the expansions there. Um, I really find that that's an interesting point that you made because what you're talking about is you're talking about randomness in the initial setup of the game, where which then is kind of known information to all players, which then is... From that point forward, there really isn't anything random about it. I, th I think you're totally right with that. Whereas in a game like Viticulture, there is randomness within the game, within the actual gameplay. There's going to be random elements. And I think that that is something that, uh, you know, depending on the players, um, is going to be something that might be problematic when you're trying to sort of uh, approach this game. Uh, people who, for example, love perfect information games like Puerto Rico or something like that are probably going to be disturbed by the amounts of randomness within the gameplay. Whereas, uh, you know, somebody who is a little bit more interested in the tactical end of things is going to be much more willing to accept that. Um, so I thought that was an excellent point. Um, what do you think about the, the idea in randomness before as opposed to randomness during a game? Do you gentlemen prefer one over the other? I think both are very valid approaches, but the games that comes out of both feel a fair bit different from each other. Um, some will appeal more to some players, others will play, appeal more to others. I personally, I'm happy playing games with either as long as it doesn't turn into feeling like I'm not actually playing the game, the game is playing me. Yeah, I think that makes sense. One right. thing I was thinking of earlier is that with uh, Viticulture, you've got a very large number of cards uh, that can change things around, particularly with the visitors. Uh, some of the wine orders are quite similar to each other, but there's an awful lot of randomness in the visitor selection. Whereas, so you don't have any idea of what you're going to get. Whereas with with Twilight Struggle, for instance, uh, there's randomness in terms of what you're drawn, but there's a fixed number of cards in each stage. You know that they're all going to come up at some point. So it's a question of who is going to get, say, Suez Crisis or uh, NORAD in the uh, optional cards or... Cuban uh, Missile Cross, who's going to get which card and when and how are you going to handle that knowing that if you haven't seen it your opponent has and that's obviously part of uh, how that game fits again thematically knowing that things are going to happen and how you can avert their effects is obviously a significant part of that game whereas with Viticulture you are basically too often clinging on to things just falling the right way the visitor changes help but they're not always enough and whereas with something like twilight struggle or games of that ilk like 1989 and this and dust volk we get the uh the way that you can use each card in a different way uh and that seems to be 
I think a better two-player fit, but then those games are built from the ground up for two players, and viticulture isn't. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, the decision space is very different with those. They're uh, more about hand management, whereas the visitor cards are usually a little stronger than what you would be able to do from just going for an action space. So if you go for a visitor-heavy strategy you're essentially taking a little bit of a risk in order to get a stronger actions, but not as much control of the actions that you would be getting from them. Yeah, that's an excellent point because uh, you're right. I mean, they, they give you these powerful boosts to your actions, but you don't really, as you said, you don't really know what you're going to get. And some of those... Um, uh, are, are going to be immensely helpful to you and others are going to be almost functionally worthless. And so it is a bit of a, a, a bit of a crapshoot when it comes to sometimes those cards. Um, and, it, you know, it's a fragile thing to build your strategy around. But boy, when it works, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> so, you know, as with most things that work out uh, for you when you're when you're doing that. And I like that term that that uh, both of you, I believe, have used that idea of risk management. There's definitely some risk management in this game. So, um Okay, so we've covered why you guys think that this game plays very well with two. We've talked a lot about the base game and quite a bit about the expansions. Um, my, my final kind of question that I have for you would be uh, simply this. So this is a game that you have played, I, I forget how many times. How many times have you played this uh, two-player? 35. Okay, so why has the game lasted that long for the two of you that it is something that you continue to want to play and enjoy playing at that player count that many times? Is there anything specifically that you found that makes this game something that was easy for you to meet your 10 by 10 challenge with? I think it helps that it uh, flows uh... Obviously, it has that distinctive uh, sort of uh, curving flow to it, but that can be quite enjoyable if you think that the game isn't going to be settled for a while uh, because there's always a chance of that big 10-point play at the end and so on. And with us uh, coming from game TV game shows, we know about how that kind of flow can be very effective in keeping things entertaining right the way to the end. Um, right. But uh, I think fundamentally, it, it, it's difficult to put a finger on it besides it just works and it's every game you play of it is uh, interesting and enjoyable. And some of that is because of the, ran- the very randomness that can make it extremely frustrating does wonders for its uh, replayability. Yeah, also there is so much in the Tuscany box that really to explore it all you need near to that sort of play count after you've played the base game enough to feel like yes I want to get an expansion for this which it's I have never seen an expansion with quite as much as Tuscany has in it it is an amazing thing that is for sure that is for sure um there there's a lot of replay value in there so 
Um, this is, I think, one of those interesting confluences of, of ideas here because the very randomness that we've been talking about and we've been dancing around it the entire episode, trying to justify it, trying to explain it, trying to explain why it is or is not palatable, is also, I think, one of the keys to the fact that the game has such longevity because there's always going to be something different in every single play of the game. Uh, things are going to come out in a different order. Things are going to happen in a different way. What was valuable to you last game is not going to be valuable the next game. Um, there's so many different ways that the game can unfold that it feels uh, different and fresh, at least in my opinion, every single time that you play it. Then you factor into that the sort of uh, uh, the, the, the pleasure effect that you get by looking at your board at the end of the game. I don't know about you guys. I don't want to speak for you. But looking at my little vineyard with my beautiful little wooden pieces of all the little buildings on it and, uh, you know, seeing all the things that, like, I made. You know, there's there's a powerful draw for me uh, and I think lot of uh, lots of gamers that this notion of accomplishment, you know, it, you, when you are done, you kind of look down and you look at your board and you're like, mm -hmm. wow, you know, I, I, I managed to pull all this together and this is kind of neat. And it doesn't really look exactly like and it didn't unfold exactly in the same way as it did any of the other times. Uh, would you guys agree with that assessment or do you have anything to add to it? Uh, I would definitely agree with that. Also, the game has a decent amount to explore, even without factoring in all of the randomness and the uh, tableau building. Um, and you also mentioned that the about the uh, little wooden structures, uh, the choice of using custom yes. wooden buildings for each of the different structures rather than what any other company would likely have done of uh, just cardboard chits to show that you've built the thing. That adds an aesthetic appeal which I do not think can be underestimated in how important that is in gaming. To It's simply a more appealing prospect to play a game with such nice pieces in them as it is to play something that whilst excellent gameplay wise doesn't look as nice on the table and i think that ties in the sort of thematic thing it's uh feels more like you built an engine when you've got the wooden pieces in even if it can be frustrating separating out the medium and the large cellars yeah something. yeah that's true that's true i forgot about that <laughs> <laughs> but uh we've uh, very much appreciated uh, i think the component quality the the little glass uh semicircular uh, uh beads that you get uh for uh denoting your uh grapes and wine values they they are gorgeous and they kind of make me want to go for a great heavy strategy too often, even if it's not my actual strategy, so I can look at all the shiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is true. That is and it's and it's wonderfully functional because it allows you to read the value that's underneath, which Indeed. is uh 
you know, fantastic. And, uh, you know, I, I want to give a little shout out here because uh, I, I believe, you know, you're both absolutely correct, which is uh, the art in the game and the presentation. I, I want to briefly uh, kind of go through the BGG page here. So we have, uh, I would say, uh, uh, Jacqui Davis, uh, David Montgomery, and Beth Sobel are the artists uh, credited with uh, Viticulture. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the board art, um, the component quality that you gentlemen have mentioned, I mean, these are things that are just unbelievable um, and make it a... It's a very eye-catching game, and it's a beautiful game to look at. And, you know, I think there definitely is something to say for that. You know, that, that tactile uh, nature of the buildings and the artwork on the board all sort of adds to the experience. And I, it, it helps to immerse you, I think, in the theme. Um, this is in stark contrast to uh, a different game that uh, I just received uh, not too long ago, and uh, I've been really eager to explore it, uh, which is Food Chain Magnate from Splatter. Now, I love Splatter games. I, I really, uh, most of them have been hits for me, but and, and I love, oh, the artwork on the card, this like 1950s style uh, advertisement art is just fantastic. And you have these weird little plain like squares with little dotted line streets and they're they're very, very bland, you know, they're very kind of just drab and they're very functional don't get me wrong um and there can be a time when art can uh, the aesthetics can overpower the function uh, i'm gonna randomly throw another game at you guys which is dominant species love the first edition of that game with its more subdued kind of palette um the later edition where they kind of jazzed up the tile art makes it almost difficult to read kind of the board and so there's a fine balance i guess is the point i'm trying to make between the art and the presentation the aesthetic of the game and the gameplay and you you, you can't really have either interfere with the other but i think viticulture yeah. got it right um from all of those kinds of aspects when you take a look at it um, everything really kind of works well. And so kudos to all of the artists uh, and, and graphic designers who were involved in that. Um, gentlemen, uh, is there anything else that you really wanted to talk about that I did not manage to ask you about uh, as we've been recording this? Because I want to make sure we've covered everything. I was just going to add that the replayability, I think, is definitely affected by the the way everything comes together as a theme with the component quality and so on as well because there have been and I think that particularly resonates a lot with Stephen probably because of the number of games that he's played and how many don't deliver on that it's uh, quite often a couple of games that I've sometimes wanted to, to play or that he's not been moved for uh, one in particular Castles of Burgundy which oh, yeah. we got uh, as a Christmas present last year and we quite often and quite often I've wanted to play it and Stephen has been a bit reluctant to get it to the table. And I think that's because it's a, it, it's a pasted on theme kind of feel, isn't it? Very much feels like the theme is not really there. Uh, there's a, a couple of small nods to theme in it. But yeah, it's, I tend to more gravitate, especially... Actually, uh, now to games that I do feel a theme come across within within them, which I very much do with uh, Viticulture and Castles of Burgundy is a bit more of a stretch for me for the theme. 
Yeah, I would agree definitely with that. It's it's funny. Um, you know, I am a, a, a definite Stefan Feld fan, uh, no doubt about that, but uh, I would never really call his games overly thematic uh, <laughs> by any stretch of imagination. Uh, I enjoy them for different reasons. But Castles of Burgundy in particular, um, I kind of felt the... Um, graphic design was a little lacking uh in that game um as opposed to others of his that i've uh, you know played and enjoyed and uh you know these things i think um for many gamers i'm not going to say for everybody because it, that wouldn't be true but for many gamers i think that these kind of aesthetic issues are actually part of what makes us pull a game off a shelf or not i think i agree with both of you in that is it's funny because i was just downstairs last night um you know my wife had said hey you know do you want to play a game and uh, i went downstairs she said pick something i'll like and i went down and i'm looking at games i'm looking at games and burgundy was one of the ones i was looking at and she likes castles of burgundy and so do i um mechanically it's just a, a really uh, it's a pleasure to play and then I looked up and I saw, oh, Glass Road. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I, we haven't played that one in a while either. You know, both of those games we hadn't played in a bit. And I, I thought about Glass Road. And, of course, as soon as I think of Glass Road, I think about the dials. And I think about, you know, the, the, the thick, chunky tiles with the, the art on them. And I'm like, ooh, yeah, let, let's play that one. And that's the one that got picked. Um, and, you know, it doesn't mean that it's a better game or a worse game, but I think you're right. These things do factor into your decision sometimes, either consciously or subconsciously. I didn't intentionally put Burgundy down because it wasn't as pretty uh, as Glass Road, but sometimes I do wonder, you know, you, you look at a game and, and, you know, why does this one get picked over that one? And I think that these are qualities that are admirable when you see them. Um, and, and they think they do definitely have an influence, I think, sometimes on what gets brought to the table. So, um, well, guys, I want to thank you for uh, agreeing to uh, talk with me about Viticulture in general and as a two-player experience in particular. Uh, I want to thank you for uh, your patience with the rescheduling and for taking the time. It's uh, probably getting uh, rather late where you are. Uh, you guys are about five or so hours ahead of me. Um, so thank you for uh, agreeing to do that. Uh, congratulations on the upcoming wedding. And, uh, you know, I, I look forward to hearing more great things from you guys and perhaps we can work together again. I heard you mention some other games that I was very excited about, like Twilight Struggle. I'd, oh, it's one of my favorites. And I don't think I have ever done an episode about Twilight Struggle. So I'm going to leave you by putting that little bug in your ear there and see whether or not you all decide to take me up on that. So, um, guys, thanks a lot for agreeing to be on the show. No problem. And thank you for having us. Yes, it's been a pleasure. It always is to have uh, the opportunity to talk about things you're interested in, something that we both very much find. And it's especially uh, reinforcing when you know that other people might be interested as well. Absolutely. 